Hey, this is Dan Wonderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. My guest today is Reverend Charlie Reed. He's the senior pastor at Pasadena Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida, and he's also a brand new author. He's here today to share with us about his new book, That'll Preach, Five Simple Steps to Your Best Sermon Ever. Well, my guest today is Reverend Charlie Reeb. He's a senior pastor at Pasadena Community Church in St. Petersburg, Florida. He's also a brand new author, and he joins us today to share a little bit about his new book, That'll Preach. Charlie, thanks so much for being with us today. Well, Dan, thank you for having me. This is great. Well, we like to begin by asking our guests to share a little bit about themselves as well as your ministry and its context. Yeah, I'm um, Pasadena Community Church, which, of course, is a United Methodist Church. And I'm on my ninth year. That's hard to believe. Nine years. And it's an historic church. Uh, for many years, J. Wallace Hamilton, who was a great Methodist preacher, um, was there for almost 40 years. And it, it was a driving church at one time. It's on big property. Uh, so it's a, it's a really good church with um, lots of great reputations in the community for um, reaching people who are in need, the hungry, those kind of things. So it's a it's a great church and a great setting, and it's a good marriage. It's really a, a pulpit church, given the the background and its history. And so it's just a good fit for me and my family. And it's in St. Pete, which isn't that either, right near the water. So I like that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a even though I live in Georgia now, I'm still a huge Rays fan. Do you make it over to any games? Oh yeah. In fact, when we first moved here, or shortly after we moved here, um, the Rays were in the World Series. And so the stadium from where we live is like 10 minutes away. Oh, wow. And I grew up in Atlanta where it was like a pilgrimage to get to downtown Atlanta for the Braves games. Right. And so all we did was drive 10 minutes and, you know, we went to the stadium and we were right there in the World Series. So that was nice. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. Well, we're, we are recording this uh, during Holy Week. So first off, thank you for taking time during this busy week to be with us. But uh, the Braves opened their brand new stadium this Friday on Good Friday. And uh, my wife was able to snap up some tickets. Uh, and unfortunately, we are now not able to go. But we didn't have any friends to give them to because all of our friends are involved in church and will be at Good Friday services. That's terrible. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. But one of the main reasons, obviously, that you're here today is to share about your new book, That'll Preach, Five Simple Steps to Your Best Sermon Ever. And uh, we'll dive into the specifics of the book soon. But the, the first kind of in-depth question we always ask our guests is about their the, the guiding principles uh, for their preaching, or even if they have a mission statement. And uh, having read the book, you basically lay all of that out for us in the book. Uh, and so why don't you give us an overview uh, or a, a summary, sort of 30,000-foot view of your approach to preaching uh, and how you laid it out here in the book. Sure. In the book, I basically say that the secret to great preaching is not really much of a secret. It just seems like a secret because um, it's hidden in plain sight, and not a lot of preachers realize it, is to engage the listener. And my approach to preaching has always been that people aren't going to listen unless they're interested. Um, so in order to get people to connect with your message and actually hear it and be transformed by it, you have to interest them. You have to engage them. That's the first step. Because if that doesn't happen, they're just going to check out. So that's always been my approach. You have to engage the listener. Uh, and part of that, too, is I think a lot of communicators, not just preachers, fall into a trap called the curse of knowledge, mm. which is in um, 
Chip and Dan Heath's book, Made to Stick, which is a great re- book I really recommend yeah, absolutely. for any communicator. But they talk about the curse of knowledge, and that is communicators, one of the biggest mistakes they make is they assume their listeners have their frame of reference or are going to process information just like them. And I think when it comes to preachers, that happens a lot. Preachers preach sermons they would love to hear, but their listeners not necessarily understand them or process them the same way. So in many ways as a preacher, when I approach my messages, I kind of try to unlearn what I know and then take the perspective of the listener. How would they hear this? How is this going to come across? Will this interest them? Will, Will this engage them? And so that's really my approach and really where the book begins. That's and that's so interesting. It, it just occurred to me that that curse of knowledge is sort of the opposite side of the coin of imposter syndrome, which is where we assume that everyone else knows everything we know, and so who are we uh, to you know act as an authority? And so right. you know, assuming that assuming that our congregations know everything that we know or or you know have the same background that we do, that causes problems. Whether that gives you confidence or whether it terrifies you. <laughs> Sure, and of, and of course, I think there's a balance. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, Fred Craddock and the new homiletic and all that was based upon the imposter approach or the imposter syndrome, as you said. And, and they assumed that their listeners knew so much and just assumed their listeners had the same knowledge. When I think in this day and age, it's probably a little more towards the other side of the curse of knowledge. But yeah, it's an interesting insight. Well, can you tell us a little bit about what uh, inspired you to write this book? Uh, was it was it an outpouring of your personal passion for preaching? Was it a solution to the problems that you're seeing as someone who trains and works with preachers? Is it a, is it a combination of both? Yeah, it's really both. I mean, I have the privilege of being able to teach preaching for the course of study at Candler School of Theology, uh, which is, of course, the school that local pastors go to if they're not taking the, the regular seminary track. And then I also teach the License to Preach School at Florida Southern for the Florida Conference, and I teach the preaching class there. And so I get the chance to hear a lot of different sermons, and I'm also on the Board of Ordained Ministry, and I'm on the proclamation team. So as I view sermons and teach preachers, uh, I've learned a a few things about how they need to change their approach. Uh, and, And what I've learned is that most sermons, when they fail, they don't fail from uh, poor content. They fail from faulty design. Mm. And I'm kind of reminded of uh, that phrase from Roger Ebert, the late movie critic. He said something very fascinating, which I think all preachers can, can learn from. He said at every movie he watched, he always kept this principle in mind. It's not what a movie is about. It's how it's about it. Right. Right. So it's, it's all in the way something is designed and framed and comes across, especially a sermon. And so when I see you know, and listen to the, a lot of these preachers, uh, I think, you know, the content is great, the theology is great, all of it's wonderful, but it's just not put together in a way that engages the listener. And so that's really one of the things that inspired me to write this book. And I just, I love preaching. I think preaching changes lives. And I think the pulpit is really the, the engine that drives the train of the church. And so uh, when you put those two things together, I was just really inspired to put this book together to help preachers.
Yeah, that that's such a great parallel with with the movies because you think about it, no one would watch a historical drama. You know, no one would have seen Titanic, and yet it broke, you know, all the revenue records at the time. Even though everyone knew the boat was going to sink, that that was the joke everyone made walking in. Like, I heard the boat sinks. <laughs> you yeah. know, but we're there, and and we know, you know, in a superhero movie, for the most part, we know that the superhero is going to win or that the city is going to be saved. It's how we get there, and that that that's it's just such a, a fundamental part of storytelling. Why do you think? we forget that when we when we go into into preaching well i think we've been overeducated in some ways uh, in terms of our theological training and i I think what we forget is that we're communicators Mm -hmm. and so when we get up to preach i think there's all this baggage of okay i have this theology that i have to communicate and i have to make sure i do a proper exegesis of scripture and communicate that right and there's all this stuff going on, when we forget, when we get up, we're communicating, and we have to use the principles of communication in order to be heard. Hmm. I think sometimes that gets drowned out, quite honestly. Yeah, I, I think that's so important, because you think of some of the hard and fast rules of preaching, and yet some of the best communicators break them, but they they can break them because they're good communicators. So you think about that, you know, there, it used to be, it's becoming less so, but it used to be, you know, don't share Greek and Hebrew words. No one cares about that stuff. But that was one of the most compelling parts of Rob Bell's teaching. Uh, and they always say, you know, don't recap your series, but Andy Stanley recaps everything. Even if it's not a series, for some reason, he finds a way to recap nothing at the beginning of his sermon. But these are, these are skilled communicators, and so they can break the rules because they're compelling to listen to. Yeah, exactly. I think you can share that stuff. As you're saying, again, it goes back to how are you sharing it? And if you share it in the right way, people are going to listen. Exactly. Well, and uh, jumping back to your passion for preaching, where did that come about? Was that something that did you did you get to preach like a youth Sunday when you were growing up or did it start in seminary? Where when was the first time when uh, God really grabbed you and, and you felt like this is what I'm supposed to do? Well, I was living in Tampa and. I was a teenager growing up in Lake Magdalene, United Methodist Church, and they had a pastor there who was one of my biggest influences. His name was Brad Densmore. He has since passed away, but he was such a compelling preacher. And as a teenager, I couldn't wait to get to church and listen to this guy, Hmm. you know, 13, 14 years old. (laughs) That's amazing. And I think that's saying a lot. And I mean, I would skip youth group to go to his Bible study and that kind of thing. So... I thought this guy really drew me in. And part of that process, as he drew me into his preaching, I felt a call to preach. And so from the very beginning, my call centered around the power of the preached word, because it was in large part through preaching that I felt a call to preach. And so, you know, always at the very beginning of my call is this idea that, you know, a preaching can change lives because Mm. it changed mine. It formed my call. And so I interned with Brad. I took him to lunch, or he took me to lunch, I should say. I didn't have much money as a teenager. <laughs> yeah. And, and he, you know, I just picked his brain, and he really influenced me and helped me to see how preaching can transform a church, transform people, and that's really the, the backbone of my call. Mm. Well, and we'll, we'll get back to the 
to the book in a second, but this this rings a lot of bells for me because I, I know for me too, preaching is a central part of how I feel and express my call. I know there's probably a lot of folks in the audience, if you're listening to a podcast about sermons, you're, you're, you probably feel like preaching is central to your call, but there's so much more to the job of the pastor. Is that something that you've struggled with over time that you've come to peace with, or is it is it that the the preaching part and the privilege of preaching in a congregation is able to energize you through those other aspects of being a pastor that maybe don't give you as much life? Yeah, gone is the day is uh, of you know great pulpiteers who just sat in their studies for fifty hours a week and worked on these great masterpieces. You know, we're pastors are CEOs and managers and. We have pastoral responsibilities, weddings, funerals. That that's the that's true. Um, but having said that, I, I will say this: I think every pastor, in my opinion, anyone who's going into uh, parish ministry at all, I think they have to make a decision early on what's going to be their pro- their priority. Mm. Now, it doesn't mean they're going to neglect other things, but I think at the very beginning they have to decide: Am I going to put a lot of energy into preaching? and become um, really effective in that area? Or am I going to be okay in that area, but focus more on pastoral care or management or administration? Uh, I don't think you can do all of them really well. I think you have to pick one and then try to do others fairly well. Hmm. So what I have done since the very beginning in my ministry is I've told churches that I go to that preaching is my number one priority. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not going to focus on these other areas, but just know how much um, impetus I put into preaching, and that it is a priority. And I found that they respect that. Well, we'll jump back uh, to, to some of the topics from the book. You mentioned a tension between the Bible being the Word of God, the foundation for the truth and the good news that we're proclaiming, but at the same time, there is a growing biblical illiteracy and a perceived lack of relevance for it in our daily lives. And so can you talk a little bit more about this paradox and, and how this uh, structure you're teaching in the book kind of addresses this paradox? Yeah, and the good news is I think a lot of preaching in, in this day and age has come to understand this. Uh, you know, there are some preachers that are are still lagging behind, but you can't assume that, that your listeners on a Sunday morning or a Saturday night or a Sunday night or whenever you have worship are just dying to hear what the Bible has to say. So I, I've often said that one of the biggest mistakes preachers make, and I used to make it too when I first started to preach, is begin the sermon like this. Our scripture lesson for today is, you know, right. oh gosh, I, I think that's the worst way to begin a sermon, because people are going to check out, or a lot of the listeners are, because they, they don't really see the Bible, a lot of them, as inspired. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of biblical illiteracy out there. So not only do they don't really respect the Bible, they really don't know much about it. And so I think you have to work harder than that. Hmm. And so the structure of my book, what it does is, is you know, you only have a, a couple minutes to really get the attention of your listeners. And so I believe you have to help them or create a desire in them to really want to know what the Bible says. Yeah. And so once you've created that desire, uh, then you can share Scripture, and then they can come to see how inspired it is and how it really connects with their lives. A section I found really interesting was a discussion on the importance of bold and passionate 
proclamation. You call us to create tension, to share the truth and grace found in the Bible, but then we need to passionately call people to action, helping them to connect with the why behind the action. Why is this such a critical step in a sermon? And can you share the things that you list in the book as factors that maybe have have held us back from from being passionate and bold in our calls to action? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I think that uh, you know it goes back to I'm I don't know if you've you've read the book or seen the video by Simon Sinek, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, start with why. Yeah. I think all preachers should see that if they haven't already. But his contention is people don't commit to what you do. They commit to why you do it. Yeah. And he talks about Martin Luther King Jr.'s I have a dream speech. And he said, that's what made it effective. What was he was explaining and expressing passionately why he cared about it. It wasn't his, I have a plan speech. It was, <laughs> I have a dream speech. Right. And I think that's an important insight. And so in the same way with preaching, the moment of proclamation is really when you tap into your convictions and you explain why the message is so important, not only to you, but to the world. And, you know, I've always felt that if a preacher doesn't express his or her convictions, they're really not being faithful to their task. And so I, I think that there are a lot of reasons why in this modern era and in the mainline church, too, that proclamation or bold and passionate proclamation and, pre- and preaching that's convicted is really, um, we really don't experience it. It's not really, you know, it's not really prevalent in the mainline church. And I think one of the reasons is, and I list this in my, in my book, is that you really have this, this issue uh, going on with uh, the new homiletic, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, the new homiletic, which sounds kind of a, a geeky word, <laughs> and I think some preachers who are listening may know what that is, but um, back in the 60s, preaching started to die because everyone in authority was being questioned, and that was just the way the 60s were. And so uh, preachers were no exception. And so this whole idea of a preacher getting up and having authority and preaching that was questioned, and so the, the result of that was a lot of seminaries didn't focus a lot on preaching anymore. And so uh, to fast forward a little bit, Fred Craddock, who kind of came upon the scene and created this big revival in the pulpit of mainline churches especially, by creating this method of preaching that was in some ways anti-authority. It was inductive. Instead of getting up and preaching and saying, this is the idea and I want you to learn this, it was less authoritative, and it kind of began with questions and assumed listeners knew a lot and respected them more, I guess, and then ended with kind of open-ended conclusions. And so I think a lot of good is coming out of the new homiletic. I mean, you have great preachers like Barbara Brown Taylor and Fred Craddock and Eugene Lowry and all these people, and it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, and it's also changed sermon structures um, in a way that it really helps the listeners hear a lot better, because that was a big piece to it, is really understanding how listeners process sermons. And so that was a good thing. But I think a shadow side to it is that it kind of softened preaching a bit, and, and in many ways made the sermon turn into kind of a, a, a essay on Scripture, uh, kind of a soft essay on Scripture instead of a really penetrating proclamation of the gospel. Mm. And so I think that's the shadow side of the new homiletic and its influence. And I think that's 
one of the things. The other thing is, I think there's this underlying idea, and I don't know, maybe you can relate to this, Dan, and other preachers can, but in the mainline church, we're proud of our good theology yeah. and our good biblical interpretation and how we have a solid understanding of these things. And I think sometimes, for some reason, we think that is a million miles from being passionate and convicted. And we think that only people who are ultra-conservative can be convicted and passionate. And for some reason, we make good theology and good proclamation mutually exclusive Mm. from each other. And so I think that that's a piece to it. And I think the last thing that I mentioned in my book was this move from being preachy and rhetorical and and oratorical in speaking to a more conversational style of preaching. And that's been a great shift in preaching, I think, over the last 30, 40 years, where preachers get up and they're more relaxed and more conversational. And that certainly engages listeners a lot more than someone getting up and being a top-down preacher. But again, the shadow side of that is preachers are trying to work so hard to be conversational and casual that they are afraid to move into that space of being convicted and passionate. And I think those three things, for me, are the main reasons uh, in the mainline church keeping us from being or passionate in our proclamation. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot of stuff just in those paragraphs in the book that I resonated with. I, I have a more conversational style, but yet I, I work myself up towards proclamation. So I kind of, you know, start conversational to, to engage folks and bring them in. But, you know, it's not necessarily, you know, using business terms like hard sell and stuff isn't always, it, it can ruffle some feathers. But but by the end, like there is a reason that you are up there proclaiming, asking for people's attention. You know, there is a reason that God has called you to preach. It's not just to say, well, this is one of many options and I hope you'll consider it this week, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of the things that separates preaching from public speaking is there is that moment when you feel inspired by your convictions to, you know, stand firmly on your feet and move from explaining to proclaiming and say, this is what I believe, and this is what I'm called to preach. So I agree with you there. It may be kind of subjective, but as someone that's seen a lot of uh, young preachers and preachers who are in the process of, of getting better, it, is there some kind of line or maybe some some sort of fuzzy guidelines you can give for where the line is between being bold and passionate and then just coming down you know, as an authoritarian in a way that turns off the congregation? Yeah, and that, I, I appreciate that question, because I think there is a lie. I mean, you don't want to come across as a, a 500-pound gorilla when you preach all the time, right. and, uh, and you don't want to come across as in any way that would turn listeners off. Um, I, I think that, well, one, and this is kind of me shamelessly selling the book, but I think <laughs> the method in my book, first of all, helps with that, because once you get to the proclamation step, which is step four in the book, the, your listeners feel more connected with you, and they, they trust you and respect you. And so really, you've earned their trust, if you do it right, I believe, um, to, to go into a convicted state of preaching that flows from your message in point. And I think the other thing is just generally, we have to test ourselves to be sure that, number one, that it's coming from a place of love. And number two, that it's coming from a scriptural place. Mm. And that three, I think we have to be self-aware. Is this anger towards a section of the church that I'm 
really upset at? <laughs> is this a, you know, um, yeah. a pet peeve of mine that really doesn't deserve all this time in the pulpit? And I think you just have to be self-aware as a preacher, too. Yeah. Well, I love the final step in your structure and even just the title of it, creating an explosion of inspiration, because many, many sermon structures end with the application or the so what or the call to action. But for you, it's it's even more than that. We don't just leave people with some suggestions, but we get them fired up and ready to go and live out this truth themselves and to experience in their relationship with God and with others. And this doesn't always mean that we finish big and loud and you specifically say, you know, to not always end your sermon the exact same way because then it becomes a formula and and people can tune out when things are exactly the same all the time but i I know for me the end of sermons are are typically a challenge sometimes it's like i'm running into a brick wall i'm going 70 miles an hour and then just bam stop dead you know crashing the plane or i can be that pilot that circles the airport 35 times you oh he's coming in for landing oh no just one more time around without giving away this whole last step uh, because we still want our our listeners to go check out the book What, what advice do you have for us in this explosion of inspiration and and landing the sermon the right way? No, and I, I really appreciate that question because I, I've never understood in public speaking circles and in preaching circles the whole concept of ending it with a call to action. I, even beginning, you know, as a young minister, when I would read books on homiletics or public speaking or whatever, so many of them, as you said, they end the message with some call to action. Well, I believe, and my book talks about it, that you need to give them a practical application for your message. But I think ending with that is just a, just an ineffective way to do it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I say that is because one of the things that psychologists have learned is that logic leads to conclusions, emotion leads to action. Mm-hmm. And so as we studied brain and human behavior, what really motivates us is, is emotion. And so the reason why I decided to end my structure or my steps this way is that people aren't going to be motivated to do anything unless they've been touched emotionally. And Maya Angelou, that great poet, uh, you know, had that wonderful quote that said, people will forget what you said, they will forget what you did but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And so I apply that to the last step and say, listen, aim for the heart. You've told them what what they need to do, but you end the message with some powerful story illustration that really touches their heart. And then you close the sermon as quickly as you can after that um, with the message and then let them feel motivated to live it out. So that's the key piece to it, I think. That's so great. And actually, a, a pet peeve of mine, and probably a lot of pastors, are church announcements. And I think the exact same uh, you know, principle applies to church announcements. Yeah. People knowing the details doesn't matter if they don't care. But if they care, they'll go and seek out the details. And so that's just a little bonus there for everybody. Oh, that's really good. I appreciate that. <laughs> well, we have a set of questions that we like to ask all of our guests. And the first one, you can answer uh, either side or both. What's one of your favorite and or most challenging preaching experiences? Well, you know, that's a great question because so often, and I think as a preacher, you could relate to this, and some of the listeners can as well, is sometimes my, my favorite preaching experience is my last sermon. <laughs> right. Now, that's not always the case, but when I, when I feel good about a particular message, and I think, gosh, I, I appreciate that. God really guided me and connected, and then I think, gosh, 
my sermons from a month ago were terrible, but this is pretty good. Yeah. And so, and I think that's good because you're always improving. And, and I, I think in some ways it's my last sermon. But the other side of that is most challenging. I would have to say, and this may be a, a common answer from uh, preachers, but in other churches I've served, having to preach with the wind in your face. And what I mean by that is you have members of your congregation who aren't, aren't real high on you for whatever reason, and you know they're out there, and you know they don't appreciate your ministry, and yeah. maybe some of them are trying their best to undermine you, and you still have to preach uh, to them in love in the midst of all that. Right. And, in, uh, and thankfully in this church, I really haven't had to face that very much. But other churches I have, and that's been difficult at times. Well, I, I, it just occurred to me, we have a topic that comes up frequently, and I should add this to our general questions. Do you prefer preaching uh, Easter or Christmas Eve? <laughs> well, I prefer Easter, and I'll tell you honestly, at this church, I haven't preached on Christmas Eve. Well, I, I, I take that back. We have two big services. We have, a, we have a big sanctuary. And the family service we have is at 5 o'clock with all the kids and families. And I don't even preach that service mm. because trying to compete with all the excited kids <laughs> right. and all that, I don't even do it. But the, the late night service, I do preach. But which one do I prefer? I would say Easter. All right. Uh, definitely Easter. Yeah. Well, who have been some of the most impactful preachers uh, or non-preacher communicators in your life and why? Well, first, I have to say Brad Densmore, who I mentioned earlier. He was there at the very beginning of my call, and he was influential not only did God speak through him to, to call me to preach, but he really taught me the power of illustrating and the power of story in a sermon and how important stories placed in a sermon perfectly work well. And that was really helpful. Um, Bill Self, who actually dedicated my book to, who recently passed away, was another preaching hero of mine. And he was my preacher growing up in Atlanta at Waikiki Road Baptist. I grew up kind of a moderate Baptist. There was really a Methodist Baptist church theologically, but, um, but he was so passionate, and he had good theology. And so he really taught me that, yeah, you can be a convicted, passionate preacher and have really good theology. And so he really married the two. Um, I'd also mention uh, Eugene Lowry has had an influence on me. He's a preaching professor, homiletics professor, who wrote The Homiletical Plot. And he really influenced me a lot in my approach. And I have to say, Andy Stanley, um, I know that he inf has influenced and does influence a lot of preachers, and that's good. And I know I don't always agree with him on every theological point he makes, um, but I tell you, the guy is an outstanding communicator. And if you are not learning from him, you're just really selling yourself short there. I think he just really understands what communication as a preacher means. And so uh, he's really uh, helped me as well. That's great. And and that point, I think, bears repeating. It's come up. So many guests have mentioned it. There are communicators that can influence us that are from different theological streams or with whom we would have significant theological differences, but we can learn from them. And and so that's that's an important thing. If you're, if you're someone out there that is looking for sermon podcasts or pastors to follow, you don't have to, you know, endorse 100% of what they say to learn from them. Indeed, I agree. In fact, I, I quote Andy Stanley a couple times in my book because I I think we can learn a lot from them. Well, are there any books or other resources that you would recommend our audience check out? 
Yes, definitely. I think The Homiletical Plot by Eugene Lowry is a great little book that's influenced me, and I think it would be helpful to readers in terms of sermon structure. Uh, In the Minister's Workshop by Hal Luckock. Now, it's been out of print for forever, but you could find one, an old copy on Amazon, I'm sure. But that book is chock full of preaching treasures that I I recommend. Luckock was an old preaching professor, and he was brilliant. Um, Communicating for a Change by Stanley, that to me, that's just a staple. That's got to be in your preaching library. I also would mention um, Nancy Duarte, who's not a preacher. She's just in the communication field, has written some fabulous books on communication. Uh, the one that I love, I like all of them, but the one in particular is called Resonate. And what she did, it's fascinating, is she analyzed sermons and speeches and tried to figure out the formula for those that really were compelling. What do they all have in common that made them compelling? And she brings that out in the book. And one of the things she talks about, which I talk about briefly in my book, is the use of contrast. And so I, I would recommend that book, too. Hmm. And Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath. That's a great book, too. Yeah, all three of their books are amazing. That one is is particularly good for communicators, but they have one on decision-making uh, and and one on um, make, making change uh, in your life. And they're, they're all well-researched, easy reads, all really great books. Um, if folks out there want to get in touch and say hi, follow your work, or find a copy of That'll Preach, what's the best way to reach out uh, to you and, and where can they find the book? Yeah. Um, well, first, I have a website, charliereeb.com, and that's P-H-A-R-L-E-Y-R-E-E-B.com. And they can find my book on my website, or they can go straight to Amazon or Cokesbury or really any of their you know, favorite retailer and, and buy the book. Um, but also on my website, there's all kinds of blogs and articles and videos and free resources that uh, people can check out. And to reach me, and I'd love to hear from other preachers, my, my email is charlie at charliereeb.com, so they can reach me there, too. Wonderful. Well, Charlie, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing about your new book. Hey, thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.